After the years of Ezra, and I'm literally going to be reading tonight, so uh, pardon me, but it will be fast. I'm not going to deviate much from the text. But after the years of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, there was this period caused the years of biblical silence, a period of about 400 years where there's no recorded message from God that's in the canonicity. Um, this, this was detailed prophecies that were prophesied in various portions, like in Daniel, concerning the periods that we're going to be touching on. All of the material taken from this particular history, though, come from uninspired secular historians, and I want to make sure we emphasize that. The history of the Jewish people comes mainly from the uninspired apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees and from the Jewish historian Josephus. There are obviously other historian books that talk about what happened to Greece and Rome and other places. But tonight I'm going to attempt to give a short overview of the history of all these world powers as they, as they interacted with the Jewish nation during these 400 years, and that's the main concern. It was Daniel's concern, what's going to happen to my country? So we'll be looking at the Persian, Grecian, and Roman histories and how they affected the Jews during this 400 years of uh, silence. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire was the government that allowed the Jews to return home, and Esther was married to a Persian monarch, and it was the Persian king who allowed Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The Persian Empire was in control when the Old Testament closed, and the empire remained in control for about 100 years after the close of the Old Testament. The Greek Empire then comes upon the scene, and at the time of the Old Testament closing, there were only small Greek city-states. But as we studied in Daniel, that empire was prophesied to rise in the future. You remember that Daniel talked about the ram in chapter 8 being the Medo-Persian Empire, then followed by the, the rough he-goat, which will be the king of Greece. The government of Rome was already in existence before the end of the Old Testament, but it was only a small kingdom that did not even reach beyond Italy, and it had no bearing at all on Judah during the Old Testament. This empire was also prophesied in Daniel 2 as the legs of iron of the statue Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, and in chapter 7 as the grave and terrible beast with the iron teeth that Daniel saw. Two other empires have already come and gone. Remember, the Syrians came on the scene and took the northern kingdom of Israel away in 721 B.C. Then the Babylonians took Judah into, into captivity, beginning in three ways, beginning in 605 B.C. But by the close of the Old Testament, the Babylonians had now fallen to the Medes and the Persians. So we get into a little review of the Medo-Persian influence uh, Cyrus ruled the Persian Empire. He was the first Persian king who ruled the empire from 559 to 530 B.C. In 539, when Babylon fell to Cyrus's army, he put Darius the Mede in charge of the Babylonian geographic area. And we talked about that in Daniel. Cyrus then issued a decree in 538 for all captive people, including the Jews, that they could return to their homeland. And in two years later, Zerubbabel in 536 took about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem, which you can study in other portions of the Old Testament. And there they immediately rebuilt the altar, and the next was eventually completed some 20 years later in 516 B.C. Uh, following Cyrus, his son Cambyses became ruler for a little while. Then Smyrtus, forgive my names and how I pronounce these. This is David Job's pronunciation, okay? Uh, Smyrtus, I thought he sounded like one of those little Smurfs when I first read that. But then he was followed by Darius the Great from 521 to 486 B.C. 
who would really be considered the third major uh, emperor of Persia. Darius built roads, he developed a fleet of naval ships, and he controlled the Mediterranean. Important to know that he now engaged in Greece, but he annexed two Grecian provinces by the name of Thrace and Macedon. But he did suffer a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Greeks in 490 BC. <clears throat> the fourth empire, uh, emperor came on Rome, Xerxes, AKA he's known as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, and he would rule from 46 to 465 BC. Xerxes captured the city of Athens, which was a primary city of the Greeks, and burned its Acropolis. The Greeks never forgave him because of this. There was always the battle between the Greeks and the Persians that was building up over time. This later gave rise to the Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, to mold all these separate city-states into united force to fight Persia, because up until then, they were all fighting among themselves. From a Jewish perspective, Xerxes got rid of Vashti, his queen, and chose a Jewish woman to be queen, that is Esther. And you read about, read about that in the book of Esther. Um, when we come to the sixth slide, Artaxerxes, whatever his name is, Longimanus, became the fifth ruler, and he ruled during the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, and he lived several years after the close of the Old Testament period. He had one legitimate son named Xerxes and 17 sons through concubines. The Greeks during this time period continued to resist the Persian forces, and eventually all of Asia Minor west of the Halys River was granted freedom from the Persian control. So there's a lot of world events going on at this particular time. As far as the Jews were concerned, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, Ezra led 1,354 men back to Jerusalem to restore worship. And in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah received permission to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, this is the fifth of the Persian kings. So the Old Testament period closes during this king's reign, but Persia stays in control for almost 100 more years in Judea. The sixth king was Xerxes, but he only reigned, he didn't even get, his seat didn't get warm. He only reigned 45 days. And he was assassinated by a half-brother named Sogdenius. Go for that one. Who was replaced six months later himself by another half-brother who killed him by the name of Darius II. Darius II then reigned in 424 through 405 BC. But what they're beginning to see is this barbarian energy that Persia had is starting to wane. Most forces are not fighting for them anymore. Now they're even having to go hire mercenaries, which will come into being in a few minutes. Gold became their greatest weapon, not men. And it was also during this particular time of about 150 years or so that the famous uh, uh, educators and, and thinkers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, lived during this particular time frame. They had a profound effect on the educated Greeks and ultimately upon all the lands that they conquered. Their philosophies dominated during the days of the New Testament, and honestly, there are many, many people who follow them even today. But many Jews themselves, even though they were given the opportunity to return back to Jerusalem, never did. They often stayed in the areas where they were captive. But Jerusalem did continue to prosper. 
And they continued to spread their influence and they became very prominent in the area again, including the prosperous province of Galilee. Artaxerxes Menemon became the ninth ruler. He was considered a good ruler. You can see he reigned almost, almost 50 years. But the main story that I want to bring out about him, of everything that was written about him, was the war with his brother Cyrus. And the reason I bring that out is because Cyrus came against his brother, but Cyrus lost. But the force that he brought with him was 113,000 men. 100,000 were of his own Persian forces. 13,000 were Greek mercenary, uh, mercenaries. And during this war, Greece found out just how inferior the Persian armies had become. And as a result, they now put their eyes upon them because they spotted their weaknesses. But during this time frame of Artaxerxes, the Jews seemed to learn their lesson about mixing with idolatrous nations who had turned them from God. Remember, from Nehemiah on, all faithful Jews kept themselves a separate people no matter where they lived. The term Gentile began to take on a new and more hostile connotation. It first meant a people in general, but by the New Testament times, the Jewish mindset divided the entire world into two groups. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Sabbath activities became even more important while the Jews were in captivity. They would meet and they would read and this was the beginning of their synagogues, which were well established by the New Testament days. Artaxerxes, uh, O-C-H-U-S, became the 10th emperor. The thing I want to mention about him is during his reign, in the middle of his reign in 340 B.C., he sent aid to the king of Thrace, who was under attack by Philip of Macedon. And this was only four years prior to Alexander assuming the throne of Greece and setting his sights on conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, one of the things that Artaxerxes did do is he reconquered Egypt and he reinvigorated the empire for a few years. But unfortunately, he was poisoned by one of his generals who then put his own son on the throne. And that son's name was A-R-S-E-S, Arses or something. He only lasted for two years because he was killed by somebody familiar from, to him, his dad, the general who put him on the throne. Why? Because he said he started thinking for himself, and he didn't want him thinking for himself. He wanted him to do what he wanted to do. So as a result, he got rid of him, and he replaced him with Darius III, who became the final Persian king. Darius III became the king of, of uh, Persia the same year that Philip of Macedon was assassinated, and then who rose to power in Greece? Alexander the Great. Darius will be the final king in the Persian dynasty. Meanwhile, over in Greece, Philip of Macedon, who's now head of the Greek coalition, was dedicated himself to the overthrow of the Persian power. But that plan seemed like it would fall apart in 336 when he was assassinated. And his son, Alexander the Great, though, became the king and took up the fight himself. And so we now come to Alexander the Great, who lived some 32 years and eight months. His personal tutor was Aristotle. He was considered a genius. He was good-looking, very impulsive, just like some of our men here. All right. 
But he was only 20 years old when his father's commanders informed him that he was now king of Macedon. And when the Greek cities rebelled, thinking that the Hellenic League was over, Alexander then moved against Thebes and captured it quickly and burned the city. So what did that do to the other Greek cities? They lined up right behind Alexander the Great, thought that would be the better way to go instead of rebelling against him. So he was finally recognized as commander-in-chief in all the forces of the Hellenic League. And in 334 B.C., he set out to pursue and defeat the Persian forces. When he crossed with 35,000 men into Asia Minor, he first met a minor force of Persian forces, and he quickly defeated them. But that was not the main Persian force. And many cities of Asia Minor were very reluctant to switch their allegiance to him because they didn't want to upset the Persians. But the Macedonians were very, very tough people. They could march fast, and he and his forces marched eastward to travel near the shoreline of the northern portion of the Mediterranean Sea and arrived at a place called ISSUS. And there he engaged the main forces of the Persian army, and the Persian king, Darius III, fled, and the rout actually turned into a slaughter. The Grecian army then marched on around the northern corner of the Mediterranean Sea and down the shoreline until they arrived at Tyre, which was the headquarters of the Persian fleet of ships that Darius had. Tyre was located a half a mile off the shore on a tiny island. Nebuchadnezzar had tried to take Tyre. They, he asked, how long did it take him to take it? He uh, besieged it, and he said, 50 years. I don't have 50 years. Let's do it in a few months. And in seven months, they built a 200-foot-wide I mean, road out to the island and took the city. And this gave Alexander control of the Persian fleet, which gave him control of the Mediterranean Sea. Having defeated Tyre, then he marched on down into, into and through Judea and then into Egypt where he was received with open arms. And there he marked off a place in the western delta to build a model city called Alexandria. And he moved north again to finally defeat Darius III and he caught up with him in the northern portion of Mesopotamia and he defeated him once for all. But in 332 B.C., he contracted a fever and he did not have the health to resist it and died at the age of 32 years and eight months. The conquest of Alexander changed the course of world history. It brought about an unprecedented mixing of the East and the West for the first time. All the power before this had been concentrated in the East. Now it was coming from the West. And since his life was cut short by his early death, the impact of Alexander was not exerted so much by what he did personally as by the actions his successors who did, who fought for control of his empire. And remember, there were four horns that were coming up after Alexander the Great. As part of his family, he was survived by his mother. He was survived by his wife, a half-brother named Philip, and a son that was born to him named Alexander, who was born after he died. At the beginning, Alexander's generals saw themselves as protectors of his empire, but their personal desires quickly became priority number one. Eventually, his mother and his half-brother were killed, and his wife and son were drowned. And with all the legitimate heirs gone, the generals wasted no time getting into a dogfight over the scraps of 
this Grecian empire. Alexander was educated by Aristotle, and he was a brilliant student. He genuinely thought that the Greek way of life was the greatest the world has ever seen, and he intended to spread that way of life throughout every territory that he conquered. He dreamed of model Greek cities throughout his empire. But obviously, he did not live long enough to make that a reality, but his generals who fought for control after him were just as determined to spread the way of the Hellenistic life to all of their areas, and that's important to always note. And uh, there was a battle of who was going to be in charge, and I'm skipping a lot of history there. But in 301 B.C., there was a treaty of peace called the Peace of Ipsus, where three men came out as primary winters. Ptolemy, who was the southern king, received Egypt, and it was called Egypt. Seleucus Nicator was the northern king, and he received Thrace, Asia Minor, Syria, Babylon, Media, and he was known as or called Syria. And Antiochus Gnocchus received Macedon and Greek. It's important to note that the empires that now bordered Judah or the Jews during the next three centuries, and not one century, not two, but three, were thoroughly dominated in a Greek culture to the north and to the south. That's like that song, um, some to the left of me, some to the jokers to the right here, I'm stuck in the middle with you. That's kind of like, you know, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> I got, I'm stuck with that song. Uh, Seleucus is the northern king, Sirius to the north. It's the southern king, Ptolemy, and Egypt is to the south. And little, literally stuck in the middle is Judea, okay? Literally, their hands changed five times in 25 years, in the first 25 years. It, it's one battle after another. But one of the most important things that came out of this was a change in the diplomatic language. When I'm talking diplomatic language, I'm talking about English is the diplomatic language in existence today. If you're going to conduct business, you do it in English. Uh, even though you may have a, your own, own native language, you learn English. The business language of the day was Aramaic in the days of the Syrians, and it became the diplomatic language of its day. It also... And since the kingdom of Judah fell to Babylon, the Aramaic language became more and more part of the daily lives of the Jews themselves. And those who returned to the homeland still tried to speak their native Hebrew language, but it became more and more difficult as the years went by. The language spoken in the typical home, Jewish home in the days of Christ was Aramaic. And it's likely the language Jesus and his disciples spoke as they traveled up and down the land of Judea. But... With the Greeks ascending to power, the Greek language now became the dominant diplomatic language. Every educated person in all the Grecian empires could read, write, and speak Greek fluently. There were more educated people by this time than ever before because human reasoning was prized by the Greeks. And the Greek language was one of the most precise languages the world had ever known, and its features made it the ideal language for God's final revelation to the world, which was undoubtedly part of the providence of God. Think about that one for a while. So let's, set the, let's uh, now set the stage. We have two main Grecian empires who would now influence the Jews, Grecian Syria and Grecian Egypt. 
In, um, as a result of the Treaty of 301, the Grecian Empire, Seleucus, as the emperor, was given the right, the right to the land of Judea. However, Ptolemy from Egypt, the southern king, said, nah, it's mine. <laughs> and uh, remember, Judea was the buffer between these two Greek empires. Uh, and so Ptolemy ended up with Judah. Um, Seleucus did build Antioch of Syria and made it his capital. And by the time of New Testament days, this city was now the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And a lot of things happened in Antioch of Syria in the New Testament timeframes. The Greek Syrian Empire would remain in power until 64 BC with the Seleucid kings ruling over it. That's almost three centuries of influence to the Jews. In the meanwhile, the Greek Egyptian Empire, as I mentioned, Ptolemy claimed Judah for his own, or Judea for his own, and it was the Greek Egyptian Empire that controlled Judea for the next 100 years. And there's real importance about that. He made the Greek model city Alexandria his capital, which was known for its museums, it was known for its arts, it was known for one of the most important libraries in the world. But after Seleucus and Ptolemy died, their successors fought for most of a century over Judea. Egypt, however, won most of the battles and controlled Judea most of the time. The Greek-Egyptian kings were very Greek in their outlook, but allowed the Jews to keep their own forms of worship and lifestyles as long as it did not infringe upon the politics of Egypt. They welcomed the Jews into Egypt, and many of the Jews migrated there. Alexandria actually became one of the main centers for Judaism, with perhaps, they estimate, a million Jews living in Alexandria. But the Jews were scattered also throughout the greater portions of the Grecian empires, and as a result, more and more of them adopted the language and the customs of the land where they lived. And as they did, it became increasingly hard for them to read their ancient Hebrew scriptures. Now, just pause here. Sometimes when people come to the country and they immigrate from this country, unless they are speaking the language in their homes, some of the young ones grow up and never know Spanish, for example, or they never know Japanese. And so while the parents and the grandparents may be speaking it, they don't learn it. It's the same thing that's happening here. They're just growing up in a culture. They're learning the language of the land. Um, but an important thing happened in 280 B.C. Ptolemies, the Ptolemies collected ancient literature uh, at Alexandria. And they loved us to build up that, that uh, library as much as they could. Ptolemy Philadelphus was fascinated when he learned of the ancient writings of the Jews. So he contacted the high priest in Jerusalem and made arrangements to translate the scriptures into Greek. Scholars were assembled probably in Alexandria, and the task was accomplished. The translation was called the Septuagint, which means 70, based upon the belief that 72 scholars completed the translation in 72 days. Now, the value of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament scriptures cannot be overestimated. Greek was the language most widely read at that time, and so now Jews everywhere could read their scriptures and the language that they'd read most easily. More importantly, for the first time, people who were not Jews had access to the sacred writings of the Old Testament. 
they could read the mighty works of God in their own native language because they didn't know Hebrew. I mean, even the Jews didn't know Hebrew now. So God obviously approved the translation. Jesus and his apostles, I'm told, quoted from it regularly. I'm told it said every six of seven quotations in the Gospels and Acts are direct quotes from the Septuagint rather than from the original Hebrew text. Now that's, that's amazing. In 198 B.C., uh, because history never stops, and world conditions never remain static. Remember, for almost 100 years, Egypt had been controlling Judea. Finally, there was a battle between Egypt and Syria that Egypt actually lost. And as a result of that, Antiochus III of Syria won the land of Judea in 198 B.C. At first, the Jews thought this change from Egyptian control to Syrian control wouldn't be too bad. But that would not prove to be the case as time went on. Even though the Egyptian empire would continue as a major force in the world, it no longer touched the Israelites on a day-to-day -day basis as much as Syria did when they took control of Judea. So, so far, we've talked about three of the four parts of the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel remembers that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the head of gold, and it would be followed by three empires in succession. We saw that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, which, is the, which in turn fell to the Greeks. That was three of the empires represented by the various parts of the image. And now we'll turn our attention to the fourth empire that would come up on history, and that's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire began slow, but then began to grow. And about the time that the Old Testament closed, it was, a, it was getting its feet underneath them. In 390 B.C., the Roman city was actually sacked by the Gauls, but gradually Rome gained control over the entire peninsula of Italy. And then in the years of 264 to 146 B.C., Rome really began to reach out beyond Italy for control of the western portion of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you just got a picture of the Mediterranean Sea. There's the western side and the eastern side. So the Greece is on the western side. So they wanted to reach beyond Italy and control the western portion of the Mediterranean. But she had a problem. Her major competitor was Carthage, who was located at the, across the toe of the boot of Italy in North Africa. So Rome and Carthage fought three major wars, which the Romans called the Punic Wars, and Punic is Latin for Phoenicians. The first war, when, when it ended, Sicily was ceded to Rome. The second war, which lasted from 219 to 201 B.C., um, when, when Rome won that, Rome took control of the entire war fleet of Carthage, and they charged Carthage a huge indemnity or military fine, and in doing so, Rome became the uncontested ruler of the western Mediterranean Sea. The third war took place much later, in 149 B.C., and it ended in 146 when Rome completely destroyed Carthage. And as a result, Rome now totally controlled anything coming into the Mediterranean Sea, and now their eyes were set on controlling the eastern portion of the Mediterranean world, which was, lo which, and who's located over there? Judea. All right. Rome will now take on Syria, but it will take 82 years to eventually overcome them. 
in which they did in 64 B.C. In 197, Rome wanted to win support from these Greek city-states that were still in existence. By that time, they were being led by Philip V from Macedon. And so Rome declared them free from Philip V, and they backed up the decree by decisively defeating Philip in a battle. Well, you would think the Greek city-states were happy with that. But it's one of those situations, well, what's good for one is not necessarily good for the other. And as a result, some of those Greek city-states uh, went and talked to Antiochus of Syria and said, I want you to come and take sides with us, and we're going to go against the Romans. So now we have a direct confrontation building between Rome and the Greek city-state, city-country or emperor of Syria. And it was a few years later in 191 B.C. that Antiochus of Syria, who happily obliged to the Greek city's uh, request, was actually defeated by the Romans in 191 B.C. So he thought too much of himself and the Romans defeated him. And so he thought he'd come back again a year later and they defeated him again in 190 B.C. And Rome, just like the Greeks, learned that the armies of Syria were really very weak. They had become very weak over time, and there was nothing that, from their eyes that would stop them from capturing all of Asia Minor. And in addition to that, they laid upon Syria a crippling indemnity that Rome demanded from Antiochus of Syria that indirectly touched the Jews for the very, very first time. So money comes into play, and paying a debt comes into play. In 188 B.C., the uh, peace treaty of Apamea, Syria had to cede all of the territory west of the Taurus Mountains to Rome, surrender all of her war elephants. That kind of sounds funny to us, doesn't it? They had to surrender all their war elephants and most of what remained in the fleet of the ships, and they had to pay an indemnity of 15,000 talents of gold. And seeing their weakness, many provinces of Syria declared their independence, and they refused to pay any more tribute to Syria itself. So this once vast empire of Syria was now crumbling. And in 187 B.C., Antiochus III was killed when he was attempting to raid a temple at Susiana for money in order to pay his debt to Rome. Debts, debts, debts. Meanwhile... In order to guarantee the indemnity would be paid by the Syrians, the Romans took Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of Antiochus III, as hostage. And then later, they swapped Antiochus Epiphanes for another son by the name of Demetrius, whom then they held for hostage until the indemnity was paid. In 160, 175 to 164 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, then there was a struggle after Antiochus III died, and who was going to be in charge? Antiochus Epiphanes would eventually gain control. Remember, he was the one who was released from Rome, and he became the co-ruler with his nephew until 175 B.C. when he became the sole ruler. By this point, Notice where Syria is. They're debt-ridden. They're facing a major foe in the east, the Parthians. 
and they're facing a major foe in the West, the Romans. Antiochus Epiphanes is looking for money from anyone that he can get it from, including his subjects in Judea. Meanwhile, during the same time period, two brothers in Judea began competing for the position of the high priest. And that position of high priest had turned into nothing more than the ruling party, the local ruler. So each one sought the support of Antiochus Epiphanes, and Jason won the position. Jason then cultivated this Hellenistic way of life, which just simply infuriated the Jews, especially the Jewish, the strictest group among the Jews called the pious ones. And in 171 BC, Jason sent a messenger by the, by the name of, I'm going to get this guy's name wrong, Menelaus, Menelaus, M-E-N-E-L-A-U-S, oh, whatever his name is, Many, we'll call him Many. Jason sent Many to carry his tributes to Antiochus. But many offered Antiochus more money, and guess who became high priest? <laughs> Menelaus became high priest and said. And as a result, Jason had to escape, and he did escape the area. As the new high priest, he allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to come into the temple, to take the temple treasury money, and to strip the costly decorations in order to finance his campaign that he was then waging against the other Greek empire, Egypt. And that erupted in 170 B.C. In 167 B.C., Rome sent a special messenger to Antiochus and said, stop your war against Egypt. Why did he want Egypt? Because he wanted money. He needed money. Stop the war. He said, yes, sir, <laughs> and stop the war. And he eventually left. When he heard that Rome said stop, Jason thought it was an opportunity to regain the high priest. So he ousted the high priest, which was his brother, upon hearing that Antiochus had reversed his, his fate. And as a result, he thought he could take advantage of that. And he did retake the position from Menelaus. However, Antiochus Epiphanes heard about this. And he sent soldiers to put down Jason's revolt and to punish the rebels and to reinstate Menelaus as the high priest. There was considerable bloodshed and many Jews were sold as slaves. And Antiochus revoked Jerusalem's status as a temple city, demolished the walls, parts of the walls, and built a fortress around the temple area. In addition to these political moves, he also decided to destroy the Jewish religion with five specific things. The temple rituals were suspended. The sacred scriptures were burned. Observance of the Sabbath and festival days were forbidden. Circumcision was forbidden. And an altar of Zeus was built on top of the altar of burnt offering at the temple. In addition to that, officers of Antiochus went throughout the land forcing people to offer incense to Zeus. Anybody who would not submit and displayed public allegiance to the idol, was publicly whipped and then killed. Antiochus thought that by taking these actions, it would help unite all of his subjects. Instead, it just propelled the Jews into open rebellion. When they tried to make an aged priest by the name of Mattathias Hesmonius uh, offer the incense to Zeus, he refused. And so they found another person, another Jew, to offer the incense. But before he could offer the incense, Mattathias killed them, 
And he also killed the officers of Antiochus and the men who were with him. And by this act, Mattathias rebelled against Antiochus, and he and his five sons fled into hiding. And as a result of this, Mattathias appointed his son Judas as military commander before he died in 166 B.C. Judas was surnamed Maccabean, or Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Judas and his followers used guerrilla warfare tactics to attack and defeat Syrian forces both time and time again. Though outnumbered, they defeated the Syrian forces. And the Maccabean revolt that we've all heard about was in full swing by now. In December of, or 1960, or 1965, in 165 BC, Antiochus died. And by December of that year, Judas and his men regained control of the temple. They cleansed it, they removed the altar of Zeus, and they replaced the altar of the burnt offerings. The recovery of the temple is still celebrated by the Jews by the feast called Hanukkah, which they observe around December 22nd of each year. The word Hanukkah mean, means lights because the Jews burn candles in their homes to celebrate the rekindling of the sacred lights of the temple. In 160 B.C., uh, Judas and his brother John was killed in the first battle against overwhelming forces, and the leadership then fell to Jonathan, who made a deal with the Syrians, and he accepted the high priest as a bribe. In 142 B.C., the Jews, um, Simon became, he was the last surviving son of Mattathias, took over the reins of leadership after Jonathan was killed, and he entered into a, an alliance with Demetrius, the Syrian king, and Judah, was granted independence from the Syrians in 142 B.C. Two years later, Simon was made not only the commander-in-chief of the army, but also the chief ruler and their high priest. After, in 134 B.C., Simon was assassinated by a son-in-law, watch those son-in-laws, who had hoped to seize power for himself, but failed in his attempt. And as a result, Simon was then succeeded by his own son, John Hyrcanus, his high priest and ruler, from Jerusalem from 134 to 104 B.C. We are rounding the corner of the last century prior to the time of Jesus Christ. He subdued the Idumeans who were Edomites, known by the, they were the Edomites known as Idumeans now, compelling them to accept circumcision and to destroy the temple of the Samaritans built on Mount Gerizim. When he died, the Maccabean effort basically deteriorated into a family fight. Meanwhile, Rome organized a large portion of Asia Minor as a Roman province called Asia in that same year. In 104 B.C., uh, John's son, Aristobulus, succeeded him as high priest and ruler. But he died one year later, left no children, so his widow married one of his half-brothers, Alexander Janaeus. And he ruled from 103 to 76 B.C. as the high priest and ruler of Jerusalem. There was enmity between the Hasmoneans, which was the ruling party, and the Pharisees. Alexander was on the run at one time, and he actually then gained some support and came back to Jerusalem. And when he did, he took 800 of the Pharisaic leaders who led the revolt and crucified them in Jerusalem, where he and his concubines could watch them while they feasted. In addition, the families of these 800 men were brought in and slaughtered before their eyes. But he was a kind soul. After, before he died, he advised his wife, Salome, to make peace with the Pharisees. <laughs> and he left his kingdom to her. 
76 to 67 BC, Salome then became the chief ruler. But because she was a woman, she could not be the high priest. She appointed her Canis II as the high priest and her son, other son, Aristobulus, as the military commander. Meanwhile, in Rome, all the states of Asia Minor became vassals of Rome. And the Roman Senate granted General Pompey the authority to conquer all of the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea and to hold control 50 miles inland. And in 67, when, when Salome died in 67 BC, Aristobulus, her son, quickly ousted his brother, Hyrcanus II, from the high priesthood and took over complete control of the Jews. But then came the Romans. And a duum named Antipater had a son named Antipater as well. This son befriended Hyrcus II and said, basically, I'm backing you for high priest. Let's get rid of Aristobulus. And in reality, Antipater wanted to rule the Jews, but he saw how, how uh, Hyrcanus II has his ticket to get there. So Hyrcanus sent a large army against Aristobulus, gained many of his followers, but Aristobulus fortified himself in the temple area. Meanwhile, Rome annexed Syria in 64 BC, and as, as General Pompey rounded the corner of the Mediterranean Sea and started down the eastern shoreline, they heard about this little, little buffer going on in Judea. So not only he, but one of his, his lieutenants went down there. Everybody, those two, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, was offering bribes and allegiance to these two guys. Eventually, General Pompey arrived at Jerusalem himself, and General Pompey believed that Aristobulus was just acting suspiciously, so he threw his support to Hyrcanus. Aristobulus was taken to, to Rome, treated leniently, and then uh, he and the other followers, actually after they were released, formed this growing colony in Rome. General Pompey took the opportunity to go into the most holy of holies in the temple, which was a sacrilege of the highest order. One author who was a confirmed atheist commented that his life went downhill after doing that. Interesting. Meanwhile, Hyrcanus was given back the high priesthood, and in temperature, the Aduum was close to his side. In 60 BC, Pompey, Julius Caesar, and Crassus, Crassus formed the first triumvirate of Rome in the face of Senate opposition. In 48 BC, there was a bitter rivalry that developed between Pompey and Caesar, and it came to blows. Pompey, General Pompey, was defeated, and then he fled to Egypt where he was brutally slain in 48 B.C. Caesar, who was in hot pursuit of him in Egypt, soon found his own life in danger. But guess who came to his help? Antipater the Aduum. And he won his battle in Egypt. And as a result, two slides away, Caesar appointed Antipater the Adumian as procurator of Judea and confirmed Hyrcanus II as the high priest and allowed him to rebuild the damaged walls of Jerusalem. Antipater in 44 BC wasted no time placing his sons into position. You will recognize these men. Herod was made the military prefect in Galilee, and Phasio was named the military prefect in Judea. Julius Caesar, the same year in 44 BC, was assassinated by a group of senators led by Brutus and Cassius, which led to chaos. Caesar's nephew, Octavian, along with Mark Antony, defeated the conspirators, divided the Roman world between themselves. Mark Antony controlled Judea, and his reign was very oppressive and made life difficult for everyone there. In 40 BC, which is our last slide, uh, a son of Aristobulus, Aristobulus named Antichitus 
joined forces with the Parthians and invaded Judea and removed Hyrcanus as the high priest again. And this time, to make sure they didn't ever come back as high priest, they cut off his ears and mutilated him so he could never serve as high priest. Phasio was captured and then committed suicide in prison. Herod escaped and went to Rome, where Mark Antony and Octavia were. Eventually, they convinced the Senate to name Herod king of the Jews because he would not be king unless he won back Judea. And gradually, he did win back Judea. Antichonus, the high priest, was captured, sent to Rome, and he was beheaded by Mark Anthony at the request of Herod. In 37 through 4 BC, the Herod took the title of Herod the Great and was the official king of Judea under the control of Rome. His reign lasted from 37 through 4 BC. Ironically, Herod the Great, the Edomite, now rules over the Jews. Well, they're coming in. I have one more page, but I'll get to that later. All right. I appreciate you. That was 400 years in a flash. I probably got a speeding ticket. John's going to give me a speeding ticket when I walk out of here. But I hope you understood it all. hope you saw the big picture. And this is something that God said was going to happen as he prophesied these things to Daniel. Not in these details, but in a global sense And we're just going to go back and see all that now come into play as we finish out the book of Daniel next week. All right. Thank you.